Hi, this is William Roy. I'm Chief McLean. Hey, I'm Melonbread. Hello, this is Lendl004. I'm Burning Heron, and you're listening to The Green Box. Tonight on The Green Box, we'll start by discussing common pitfalls when writing scenarios. Later, we'll find ways to adapt popular media into scenarios. And finally, we'll talk about popular media that have inspired us and may inspire you as well. Okay, if you guys ever played a game, not necessarily Delta Green, where you kind of feel like you're playing guess what the GM is thinking, know what I mean? I think so. You're talking about, like, where the GM has a very specific train of logic you have to figure out rather than kind of naturally approaching the problem, like an old adventure game. Yeah, like uh, like like the old Sierra Adventure games, for instance. Like a railroaded adventure. Well, not even necessarily a railroaded thing, just a thing where the guy who wrote the scenario thought the solution was obvious, and for one reason or another, it wasn't so obvious. Or maybe it would have been obvious if the players had gone left instead of right, or, you know, any one of a million different things. It's often said that uh, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Well, it's also true that no scenario survives contact with the players. Yeah, I can see what what you're talking about. Um, I've certainly fallen into that trap. As someone who's written scenarios, you write a cool scenario where A leads to B leads to C. Um, I'll use uh, Hard Candy as an example where I uh, I wanted the players to investigate the victim of a crime, and my players completely ignored the victim and hyper-focused on some drug dealer and went down a road that I was not prepared for. So I just improvised, but they left all of my clues that were ready for the victim to fi- to help them figure out. I had to kind of quickly shoehorn into the this drug dealer aspect. And I think it worked, but if I hadn't been quick on my feet, I would have had to either railroad the players back into the victim, which would have been frustrating, or I would have had to just hope they stumbled upon the clues that were not in the right place. So, like, what would you have done to mitigate this thing? Uh, you, you thought it was so obvious, but we as your players didn't. So I'll give you two two answers. One is kind of the harder answer, which is, as a GM, just recognize that you have to be flexible and be ready to throw things out either ad hoc or be ready to throw away parts of your scenario that you planned on, make it work. Ultimately, your goal is to tell a fun story, not to drag your players through exactly what you wanted them to go through. But that's difficult. The easier solution, I think, is uh, a good GM friend of mine, the guy who introduced me into Delta Green, uh, gave me some advice once that was, if you write it down, you will tell your players about it. So... I didn't need to have in my notes all the drug dealer angles written down or the fact that there was a drug dealer at all. I could have just given the, the, the investigators a very simple objective, investigate this family, and then they would have had nowhere else to go. They would have went and talked to the family. I was going to say, uh, so one of the things about Hard Candy without digging into the weeds of specific details, Hard Candy, from what I remember from your notes, had a very evocative hook and so I think one of the things I warned you was that the players were really going to latch onto that hook. I could anticipate them going afield. So maybe if you have one really cool thing, anticipate maybe that your players will 
abandon certain side paths if they come across the coolest thing. That's the thing they really want to investigate. Uh, one thing I noticed you mentioned was that when your players uh, went uh, off off the rails, so to speak, you sort of adapted what you had to fit the direction they were going in. Is that right? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I you know, it's it's the old Dungeons and Dragons trope of you know you want your players to go through the forest to the to the castle. So they go, instead of the forest, they go down the beach, and you're like, hey, at the end of the beach, it's a castle. I've heard this idea referred to as the quantum ogre, and uh, I have occasionally seen it lauded. I've seen it uh, criticized. Personally, I think it's a good tool to have in the GM's toolbox, because you can't anticipate every possible thing that your players are going to do, right? you got to prepare something, and if what you prepared is a castle, and they go on the beach, well, they either find a castle or they come back next week. Yeah, you can only be expected to improvise so much. Yeah, and the real secret is um, your players aren't going to know how much you're bullshitting because you're not going to tell them, or at least you shouldn't. I mean, you can if you really want to. The key is verisimilitude, the, the, the illusion of consistency. The gumshoe system kind of codifies that in a way with something they call floating clues, which is uh, a floating clue is essentially a conclusion you want your players to reach that isn't necessarily tied to a single document or a single NPC or a single location. It's a way for you to think about how the players need to progress by finding out certain information without railroading exactly how they find it. Right. Uh, If you want to convey that your suspect in a Delta Green game, he's driving a red rental car, you have lots of ways you could convey that. You could have a witness say, oh, I saw him get into a red car. You could uh, have a rental car receipt at his house. There's lots of different ways. So, like, say if players are searching the house and they miss the receipt somehow because they didn't look in that room, uh, later on you could have them interviewing a neighbor and the neighbor could say, I saw him in the red car. I think ideally you'd want to have one other place for that clue to be found. Like, a good number might be three. Three clues. You know, I think, I, I think I've heard you talk about this before, Alan Bill. Yeah, one of the things, I don't know where I've, I read it, it's not original to me, certainly, is every piece of information that you want your players to have, you should have three clues for it to be found. Because your players are going to just blunder past the first obvious one. They're going to not even look for the second obvious one. They're going to find the third one. Um, we talked uh, last week a little bit about useless characters with air quotes and having three clues can be a good way to give your, uh, bookworm character or your computer nerd character, maybe something to do, have two of the clues findable on the crime scene, you know, one by a face person talking to someone, one by your forensics person looking up, uh, finding the blood spatter and one with your computer person looking through the the security camera footage. If you have those three people in your group, it's a pretty good chance that one of them will stumble onto the clue you need them to find. It's my experience that if you design N clues, your players will ignore N minus one of those clues. Right, yeah, there's, you shouldn't just cap it at three. You should have lots and lots of ways to convey the intent of your investigation, what you want them to find, where you want them to go. I think that as a handler, your primary job is to get the investigation from the beginning and to the end. So there should be, you know, a minimum number of clues that gets them to the end, where you want the ending to take place, what you have. The castle, uh, to use your example from earlier, your, your job is to get the players to the castle. So you can have lots and lots of other clues uh, that can help develop what course of action they take once they get to the end. 
those are more like like flavor thing that help them to make decisions about what they want to do at the end. So I really like the three clue rule, and uh, I typically don't do it, or I don't do it intentionally. I typically am just half decent on my feet and try to make sure that I can work what I need to into the scenario. But I did one of the last scenarios I wrote, I specifically had just kind of read some more codifying of the three clue rule. So I said, I'm going to do this very, very to spec and make sure I have three distinct clues for each thing. Um, so I did that and it was a scenario called true American hate. And I feel like my players were constantly at the, at the edge of giving up. They had no clue what to do. They stumbled. So I don't know whether that worked really well because they felt like they had no idea what they were doing, but they kept progressing logically or whether uh, I didn't pick three good clues. I don't know if they had fun or not. Uh, so I feel like my one experiment with it was inconclusive and I want to try doing more that are very distinctly kind of three cluey. And that, that brings me to a point I wanted to make a, a second ago was the goal of, of most of these, most of our efforts here is to tell a fun story with our players. So if your players are totally running down the wrong direction and it's flustering you and you don't know how to improvise it, don't be afraid to kind of do a little timeout and be like, hey guys, you've gone to an area where I'm just not prepared. Can we just steer back to what I have? Like your players will understand that. Um, and you'll be better for it. So don't be afraid to kind of break that fourth wall a little bit and you get, get back on the right track. So something else, uh, another scenario writing um, uh, problem, so to speak, and this is, this usually you don't realize it's an issue until you have hypervigilant players who overthink everything and then you are, then as you have to solve it as a handler, but we're, we're going to kind of discuss how you can kind of solve this pre-handler. So, all right, you're, you're, your shotgun scenario here is that there's uh, some bad guys in a house. Uh, your team wants to go investigate it. Obviously, you're going to want to leave somebody outside to guard the door. It makes common sense. You want to have eyes outside. You don't want to get ambushed. But as a player who is sitting in the car waiting for something to happen, that's really boring. You don't get to participate in the skill checks inside or know what's going on. But it makes sense to do it. So how can we, one, write scenarios that don't involve this, or if we do, keep that player engaged? Well, let me just say, first of all, I'm guilty of doing this. Uh, I, In fact, uh, in, in my shotgun scenario last year, I did this by accident in the first draft, and then I, I rightly caught hell for it from my playtesters. It also happened to be another game that I ran. It was somebody else's scenario. I can't remember which it was. In any case, wanting to leave somebody guarding the door is both good planning and a, an understandable instinct on the part of the players. My solution to deal with that specific example of leaving somebody, uh, essentially splitting the party, is to have backup provided by NPCs. For instance, in the scenario that I can't remember the name of, the, the program's investigation is conducted under the umbrella of an FBI case. So there's an FBI agent who's also an agent of the program who's kind of running things. So what I did was I had her assign a couple of agents to wait outside the door in an unmarked van with tinted windows so that all the players got to go inside and do all the fun things and roll dice. That's actually a good point. What, what's the point of a friendly if you're not just going to assign an NPC to do the stuff the players don't want to do? One of the things I did in one of my scenarios was I had four players went into a building to clear it and investigate it, and the, the last person stayed in the car. What I did is give them a map of the building and they were kind of talking the investigators inside through looking for hidden spaces, uh, 
checking cameras, that sort of thing. So they were engaged. They were able to stay outside, but they were able to say like, hey, there should be a closet on your left. I know, so it's a wall. And it was one, it was fun because I only the only person at the table who had the map was the player in the car. And everyone else, they had to kind of talk everyone else through it. And that was a fun experience. So he's like a, a dispatcher, essentially. Yeah, kind of. They were like a computer expert, and they had taken the time, the scenario before, to uh, pull plans for the building, uh, which I thought was clever. So we ha- we happened to have a break over it, so I gave them plans for the building. The other thing, which I brought up kind of talking about being off the road, off the railroad, it's okay to have a discussion with your players of, hey, hey leaving someone outside is totally prudent. Here's the deal. I'm not going to ambush you without giving you a chance to deal with it. And that way, you're not going to sit outside and be bored the whole time. That's okay to have that discussion when you're kind of setting the stakes for what the game is going to be like. Then they go, okay, we can all go inside and you just won't ambush them like a jerk. Well, I think that's a good point regarding having sort of a social contract within the game. The same as if the players are going too far afield, you can just break the fourth wall and gently shepherd them back onto the main path. You can just set out some of the things. Here's what I'm not going to do. So you don't have to worry about it. Let us just keep going instead of falling down a side path. I'm not a huge fan of that myself. I like increasing player paranoia. Uh, I think that's an important part of Delta Green Games for me is just making your agents look over their shoulders constantly. But uh, I could see how that would relate here. Uh, Leaving a character in the car is not fun for everyone. I, I could see that immediately. And you're not saying there will be no risk and no danger and no challenge. You're simply saying this one thing that you want to avoid prudently won't happen because it takes it makes the game less fun as a player. Well, at the risk of segueing into the discussion of, of running games versus running them, part of that's also reading the table. You know, you might have a group of players who, in the moment, you decide, okay, I don't think these guys are going to bog down the game by you know, poking everything with a 10-foot pole, leaving somebody outside to watch for backup, putting somebody else on the other side of the building to watch for reinforcements there. Or, on the other hand, you might have a group of players who insist on doing uh, meticulous stuff like that, and you decide, because you think they'll enjoy it, or they'll get funny reactions, you just decide to start playing on their paranoia and asking, are you sure all the time? So you discussed uh, having uh, competent players uh, playing out what they know, i.e. the computer scientist going in and getting into the database of maps and getting maps of the buildings they knew they were about to search. So we have competent players, but how do we engage competent players? We have to increase the difficulty steps, right? You have to present them with a challenge from the NPC enemies. And uh, it's easy as a GM, as a handler, to when you're designing uh, an adversary to give it laser cannons and rocket launchers, diamond armor skin, and then you realize, wait, uh, this has to be at least gameable, if not winnable. Well, I mean, that's the age-old issue of the arms race between you know the the GM and the players. But uh, certainly, there is a a less a less extreme example where uh, occasionally, and you know, I've run into this occasionally if I'm trying to present an adversarial group to the players. I sometimes give them too much credit. Uh, for instance, it's often said about like conspiracy theories, like you know the, the moon landing or Elvis being killed, that in order for a conspiracy to be that successful, the number of people that would have to be perfectly loyal and never say anything ever, even accidentally, 
is too high to be believable. The same is true for conspiracies in the world of Delta Green. To some extent, I mean, I know the program itself is a secret conspiracy that somehow has managed to avoid media attention. I think a large number of Delta Green scenarios predicated on the fact that Delta Green has an issue and he's solving because it's not perfect. That's actually a good point, yeah. If, if the program was able to maintain perfect information quarantines, it wouldn't need field agents. But uh, I, what I was trying to get at was it is easy when creating a rival conspiracy or cult or organization or whatever to create one that is too good, that is too loyal, that is too well compartmentalized. The truth is people make mistakes. Somebody is going to fuck up eventually. That relates to the infallibility of loyalty. You know, you can't trust everyone always. Yeah, not everyone's uh, morals line up with those of their employer. Not everyone is free from laziness or greed or just a desire to cover their own ass, even if they're otherwise loyal to their bosses. Or the other side of that, not everybody who works for a secret cultist conspiracy knows the stakes. You know, maybe they just think they work a shitty job, and they know one or two things that no one expects them to know. That reminds me of an old crime novel called The Outfit. One of the major plot points is that a lot of employees for the New York Mafia, they don't see themselves as criminals. The Mafia has grown too big and has too many front businesses. So even though the people who work at those front businesses realize not everything is on the level, they don't see themselves as mobsters. They're just working a job at a company owned by the mob. They just happen working for another crooked company. Yeah, and so when an independent gangster comes in and tries to knock down all these front companies, they just give up the money because they're not hardened mobsters. Yeah, because I don't get paid for this shit. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's, in the writing stage, that's something you should really consider. I think that the problem of perfect conspiracies comes up when you're not really delving into the details of how the conspiracy works. You should try to dig deeper and come up with individual characters, actual people who make all this happen, and that's where you can come up with the fractures in the conspiracy. This guy doesn't actually like his job, he doesn't believe in what he's doing, he's not going to fight you if you try to pressure him into doing something he shouldn't. This guy has uh, an alcohol problem. And when he's sober, he knows to keep his mouth shut. But once you get a couple drinks in him, he'll tell you anything he wants you want to know. And so I think you have to create sources of weaknesses for the players to exploit. You don't have to lead the players to them, but you should reward them for kind of tracking down who's involved and finding out how you can leverage them to your advantage. So that, that does boil down to writing. You have to write realistic NPCs, or... Uh... Well, not so much realistic, but uh, you have to write enemies, at least human enemies. You have to write human enemies that not just can be defeated, but have, like, you know, flaws, make mistakes, forget to tie their shoelaces, that kind of thing. And that all goes out the window when you're dealing with, you know, mythos enemies, because then all fucking bets are off. But uh, certainly when you're dealing with, with humans, which... Ellendale, I think I think you've said, and I, I think I I don't disagree. Delta Green can be a lot more interesting when when the, the the threat is humans playing with toys they shouldn't have, rather than oh, it's the fucking Mego again. Not even toys they shouldn't have. The my biggest threat in Delta Green is just bad guys or bad people. One thing that also came up when Melon and I were writing scenario, the details don't really matter, 
But you should keep in mind that an encounter with the supernatural is so vanishingly rare that someone outside Delta Green or a hardcore cult is probably going to flip their lid when they have that encounter. So there's no reason for them to be to act rationally because they are under a lot of stress. They are going to be making mistakes. Yes, especially as they try to rationalize what it is they've seen in such a way that they're able to retain their, you know, their worldview where things matter. NPCs fail sand tests too. Yeah, especially more so uh, non uh, NPCs who have no exposure to the unnatural. Like you know, cultists, you can make you can make an argument. Well, you know, maybe they're going to be able to handle themselves better, or maybe they just can start singing hymns because their god has appeared and they charge at you with whatever sharp objects are handy. It depends on the cult. We just had a thing where firefighters arrived to the scene of a Delta Green operation to put out the fires. That was uh, started by someone's agent. I don't know who. But uh, out from the flames of the burning building walked uh, a ghost of a Puritan witch, and the firefighters immediately stopped dousing the fire and ran away. It it was my agent. My agent set the fire. (laughs) Yes, no, I gathered that. But uh, just to kind of get us back on track, we, we have to wait to write enemies that aren't perfect. Because if they were perfect, there wouldn't be an investigation. You have to leave the breadcrumb trail for your players to follow. Otherwise, there's no investigation. And holy shit, that ties us back into the three clue. We've gone full full circle, guys. We did it. Final comments? Uh, yeah, so I guess my, my final wrap-up for scenario writing pitfalls is uh, don't write a scenario in a vacuum. Bounce your rough draft off somebody who you trust who's written scenarios or somebody you don't trust who's written scenarios. Play test it a couple times with the you know with the social contract of, hey guys, this is a work in progress. You know, let's just see what happens. Is um, you're not going to write a perfect scenario right out of the gate. Uh, so let players find your find your mistakes. Let other handlers find your mistakes, and then rework it, rewrite it, rewrite it a few times, and you'll have a solid good scenario coming out the other end. Uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit about how to take your favorite media property and turn it into an interesting scenario for other people to play. And the reason we decided to talk about this is because a lot of people at R Night of the Opera will do it. But in general, one of the things that I've noticed on both the subreddit and the mailing list is that most of the posts are someone posting something from somewhere else and saying, wouldn't it be fabulous if this were a Delta Green adventure? It got to the point where the moderator of the subreddit actually instituted a rule against doing that unless you provide more context because it was all that people would post about. And so given that there's clearly an appetite for this sort of thing, we thought it would be interesting to give a few tips on how to take something like that that you enjoy and design a scenario around it. Okay, so let's say you have your favorite uh, favorite media property. I think one of the problems you're going to face here is that you, if it's your favorite thing or you love it, you're going to know everything about it. You know all the characters, all the intricacies, all the cool plots, the fact that in the second season, you know, some guy was played by a different different actor, whatever. But if I'm playing in the scenario you wrote based on this property, I may have never seen it. 
So I feel like one of the challenges is to not just write a cool scenario based around intellectual property, but to write a cool scenario. Period. One of the one of the things I remember uh, thinking when I was when I when I would do stuff like this, I had one called "Is it killing?" When I looked to the other side, and there was a there was a whole plot element in there that was based on uh, the novel "Sorcerer's House." A very elaborate subplot with a pair of of identical twin brothers who uh, one of them had written letters to the other as part of a con to trying to get them to come to this house and so on. And it was a lot of stuff that was taken directly from the book, but wasn't expressly relevant to the actual thrust of the scenario, which took place in an entirely different environment about entirely different characters. And so the first lesson from this that we can draw is be willing to cut out a lot of stuff. And in fact, be willing to cut out most of the stuff because typically within a given film or book or movie or what have you, there's about one, two, or three parts that actually would make a good Delta Green scenario. And there's a lot of stuff that doesn't translate that well. So pick your favorite set pieces or your favorite uh, plot elements and focus on those. Because one of the, 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 the tricks of scenario design is to to cut and cut and cut until you are left with the good parts and the stuff that connects them. One of my favorite quotes about writing in general is Jack London, who basically said you can't write, can't wait for inspiration. You have to go after it with a club. So I always tell people when they're writing something and they want to make it better, to just beat it to death until it comes back again and again and again until you have something useful. And that's for any kind of writing, it's especially scenario design. Indeed. And I, th- I think that uh, one of the things that I just said there about uh, connective tissue between pieces of an adventure is would be my next tip for doing this, which is think about the plot of, of anything that you like and notice that the actual sequence of events by which the characters progress through the plot elements is highly unlikely to occur in that specific way in a scenario to set up. There's going to be lots of strange coincidences and stuff that in an RPG you could not depend on happening. And so you once you've got your short list of stuff you want to include, the next step is to figure out ways to tie it all together. So lots and lots and lots of connections between those those plot elements that would make it possible for someone actually playing the game to not recreate the journey of the protagonists in the original work, because that's that's not the not the job of, of playing RPGs, but to actually give the characters some possibility of you know, progressing through this scenario and experiencing all the things that you've written. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about the three clue rule before. So think of a movie as having as following the one clue rule. Everybody follows one clue to the next scene, to the next scene, to the next scene. So you have to basically write three times as much connective tissue than the movie had to make it work at a, a starting level, basic level. Okay, so you've uh, you've taken you've taken the media that you really like. You've written a cool scenario based around a little bit of it, and you've beaten this scenario up and think it's well written. Do you see a pitfall of writing this kind of scenario as people as having to have insider knowledge of the the intellectual property in general? You know, if you don't know about the cool mythos of Hellboy, I don't know if that's the best specific example because the Hellboy mythos is just the Cthulhu mythos with Christianity stapled on top of it. But in general, I think it works much better in some cases when the players aren't familiar with it because one thing that is very is a very common complaint about Delta Green Call of Cthulhu, those types of games, is that once the players have the insider knowledge of the game setting, it makes most of the published material almost unusable because they know what's coming. When and the only way that they can avoid doing that is to very consciously look the other way when there's very what are what are to them very obvious clues about what's going on. And if you then take something that nobody has ever heard of, 
you can spin a much more interesting, well, maybe not much more interesting, but you can do stuff that surprises people or that is new and does not immediately give away what's happening. So how do you feel about, uh, so say you write a, uh, a little, little shotgun style scenario, a short scenario based on a, you know, a movie or a, or a book or whatever. Um, but so say all of your friends, so you know, you're playing with your normal circle of friends and this is a, one of your favorite movies. You guys watch it every year. Uh, you know, it's well known to your group. You know, all the lines and all the in jokes. Do you think writing a scenario kind of based around that could be fun and interesting or would that be something to avoid? Uh, I think that you should, if you do it, you shouldn't expect people to take it too seriously. It'd be like if we ran a scenario based on the thing, and then everyone would be like, you know, Mac wants the flamethrower, get that fucking dog out of here, it's been bothering me all night, cheating bitch, etc., etc. And, you know, Wilford Brimley is going to get his fat ass into the little UFO and fly off the Jupiter. And I don't think that that would be terrible, but if you were hoping for a night of deeply ap- atmospheric horror RPG gaming, you would be unhappy with that. Yeah, that's valid. I think there's a time and a place for less atmospheric horror, less horror gaming. And you know that I don't really take atmosphere and horror and all that stuff that seriously when I write stuff and when I run stuff. I feel like it's fine, but that the amount of of like extremely tight narrative control I would have to exert over even people like talking and stuff in order to build the correct mood for that is so out of proportion with the amount of benefit I would actually gain from doing so that I never bothered. And I'm sure that it's it's an extremely valuable experience, but it's not for me. I never, I never, I guess I just don't really play Delta Green or run it anyways, like a horror game. I run it as here's an interesting puzzle, here's a cool mystery. So let's go back to one of the things you said earlier: uh, the connective tissue. It's going to be really easy, I think, to write the cool high points of your scenario. You know, if you want to use the temple from Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom. You know, you have it in your head. You've seen the movie a million times. You write school descriptions of these cultists and Kalima, Kalima. That's easy, right? But the how do you force yourself that, to to be interested in also writing the boring part where they ride the elephants to find you know the temple? Uh, the way that I do scenarios is I, and this is this is the way that I write everything is that I think of the parts that I already know need to be there. And I put those into the document. This is something that you couldn't you couldn't do if you're using a typewriter or whatever. You get all the stuff down that you know needs to be there. And when I do it, I always type in between those things descriptive text, run up to the structure, or clue that links this element. There was a game designer name of Egg McMillan, guy who did Super Meat Boy and Isaac and all those games, who had a, a rule about this, which was do the thing that you are most excited about, do something that you find fun. And then once you're riding that high, once you've, you've got some momentum going, then you can go to the part that you think is real bullshit. So if you, if you, when you're designing scenarios, you hate writing stat blocks, don't do the stat blocks first. Do the part that you enjoy. And then hopefully there's some part of this that you enjoy. Otherwise, you probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast because you're just going to subject yourself to something that makes you miserable. Then I don't want to be part of that. But generally, intersperse the parts that, that are drudgery with the parts that you find exciting. But any uh, any parting words of wisdom to somebody who is uh, kind of entering this new because they want to write about their current favorite book? Uh, I don't know what necessarily is an appropriate motivation for creating content for Delta Green, or really any for any game, because this doesn't apply just apply to Delta Green. So I don't know if, if the best reason to get in to, to, to start doing that sort of thing is because you want to recreate uh, say a, a novel or a, uh, a movie or something, but honestly, I think that's a fine thing to do. 
So just as a, as a kind of a real world example, um, hopefully you got, hopefully people who are listening are familiar with the movie Sicario. There's a scene earlier in the movie where uh, the agents, agents raid a house and they end up shooting through the wall and they didn't realize that the walls have, are bleeding and they pull the sheet rack down and there's some bodies stuffed into each cavity, each uh, in between all the studs of the walls. And that was a really cool scene in the movie because it was kind of out there. You didn't expect it. And it kind of set the tone. One of the players who frequents this subreddit used that in his scenario, but he didn't. He just used that one little piece. I'm going to pause it while I find the name of the, uh, of the scenario. Death is no parenthesis. In Death is no parenthesis, it's the same. It's like, as, as you said, it's a, a set piece from the film taken and used to launch a completely different investigation. Because in this case, rather than being the bodies of. I think in the film they were they were uh, women that had been trafficked or that the the cartels were just murdering because of some some such thing. In this film, uh, in this scenario, the bodies are all the same guy. It's the same corpse over and over again of the same person. Yeah, so that's that's nice because people who know the move really well can see that it's a nod in their minds eye. They see it and they're like, "Oh, cool! It's so gnarly." And people who don't know it. They still can picture it, but neither person knows what's happening next. Nobody has an, an advantage. So I think what we're getting at here is, you know, you want to make sure if you're going to utilize something from popular media, that you do it in a way that's not going to make it obvious to the players what the next step is, because you're not just following the movie beat for beat, but it will allow people who know that media to be like, oh, this is so cool. I'll really get into it. And also, you can change the names of things in the scenario. You have to, though. Most of the time, it's... Uh... It's not really going to to disguise your sources. I think what you're trying to say is, you know, don't feel like you need to hide that you're scrubbing off someone else. Just own it, uh, and nobody's going to get mad at it, and people are going to like it. So own the fact that you're cribbing from every source you possibly can, and make it make a good scenario around those cribs. And at the bottom, that's the bottom line. People will enjoy it. So we thought we'd follow up on the discussion of how do you adapt stories and setting content from other media properties. We thought we'd follow that up with a few examples of media properties that make great fodder for Delta Green games. My suggestion for that is uh, Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men. At its core, you've got a person who stumbles into something greater than themselves, and then you've got uh, the psychopathic killer who's hunting him down, and the law enforcement element who's trailing behind both of them. So it already sounds like, you know, you've got your basis for a good investigatory scenario. All you really got to do is add some mythos elements into it. One of the things I'd probably do is, instead of it being like Mexican heroin or whatever it is that's in those those bundles in the back of the pickup trucks, you make like Reverb or Liao or another one of those mythos drugs. And then that, of course, invites in... Uh, Hound of the Angles, if you want, like a supernatural monster. Yeah, what would you use from the film in creating a, uh, a sort of unique the game experience? Well, uh, two things really come to mind. Number one is the the shootout scene where there's just a bunch of pickup trucks that are left in like a circle from where they were doing the exchange of the drugs and the money. That's when you learn that there were two actors here prior to this. There was the uh, cartel, and then there was some sort of an American party that was exchanging them with them. So the players could come and investigate that initially just to try and follow up on some leads and begin the investigation. Then off-screen... Uh, as a handler, you have the uh, antagonistic third party 
who uh, in the film was Anton Sugar, somehow he could find a lead to track the players down. So, yeah, you've got sort of a chase going on there. You've got the players chasing the, the drugs or the money, and then you've got the antagonist chasing the players down. And that was a character who already acted very much like we would expect a, a Yithian or a Serpent Man or something to act. Right, yeah, it could be one of those things, or it could just be uh, a cultist. Which raises an interesting question of, like, how heavily you want to bring in the horror or mythos of elements into it. Maybe the inciting incident is over drug money regarding reverb, and then you have this sociopathic killer chasing the people involved. Or maybe it's an actual, like, occult artifact, and the killer is some mythos monster that just looks human. Which actually, if you go pretty far along that direction, you kind of end up with uh, Lovecraft's story, The Hound, about a couple of grave robbers who get murdered by the ghost they stole from. Yeah, that seems to, like it could fit pretty well there. The other scene I would adapt from uh, No Country for Old Men would be the first hotel scene. That's when Llewellyn Moss stashes the suitcase full of money in the air vent and then shoves it to the back side of the air vent and uh the hotel has rooms on both sides of the air vent so he leaves and he comes back and he gets this sort of uh suspicion that he's being followed by somebody so he goes to the hotel clerk and he rents the room that's facing the back side of the one he originally checked in on this is going somewhere i promise so while he is attempting to reach into the air vent to get the briefcase out from the back side of his original room you've got anton sugar who's arriving and he's got the transponder beacon tells him roughly where the briefcase is he stumbles into the wrong room and he shoots the mexicans who are chasing Llewellyn, and it allows Llewellyn to escape i think that Frame the right way, you could really add some tense moments into your Delta Green game using a device similar to that. Right, so the takeaways are that you don't need to give those types of moments any special treatment when you adapt them because they're already designed to be believable within a realistic game world. Right, it's it's already very tense, and the only things you really needed to add was how did this person get here and how did this party get here. The tension is there, all you've got to do is add players to it. They'd probably uh, not be as smart as Llewellyn, though. They'd probably just wait in their room to be ambushed or something like that. Well, in fairness, the, the other difference there is that Llewellyn Moss is, is a smart, capable individual. He's like a scout sniper or a LERP or something from Vietnam. On the other hand, I'd say the average Delta Green party is about four guys who have a, each have a minimum of 50% chance to just kill you with a firearm. So... You're talking about a group of people that is quite a bit deadlier than the protagonist in the film, even if they're not quite as bright. Uh, this is probably where you could add some mythos elements into it. You know, uh, I mentioned earlier, if you're using like Liao or Reverb, then just throw a hound of the angles in there. Lots and lots of angles in a, a hotel room. I think it would be good to have them be after the package rather than the specific people around it, or find something more engaging than just it wants to kill you. I remember a scenario for Old Delta Green called New Age. And one of the cool things about New Age that it's people talk a lot about doing this in game design, like for video games, which is that the first time a monster is introduced, the monster is not directly trying to harm the player characters. Because in the first part of New Age, there's a convoluted plot about 
like protomatter disguised humans or whatever. But the first time you fight one of them, you don't actually fight it. It's not trying to fight you. It's trying to steal something from you or it's trying to cover up evidence of a crime. And so it isn't trying to murder you and in fact might be trying to avoid killing you or even encountering you at all. So the first time you fight it, you're not guaranteed to be torn to shreds because you don't know its specific secret weak point. You encounter it in a situation where it has some other objective besides killing you, and therefore you actually get to interact with it in a way that could possibly teach you something for when you meet it later in the scenario. Right. In the film, there was, uh, he called it the Ultimo Ombre, the last man standing. Maybe the last man standing knows the key to not getting ripped to shreds by this monster. The main thing that we discussed was that when you adapt anything from a film or a book or whatever, you need to add a lot more connections between the different plot elements and set pieces because most of the ones in a given media property are very thin and not something that someone playing an RPG would pick up on. Right. There's a lot of very thin things in No Country for Old Men. Me and my wife actually watched it about two weeks ago and she was like, well, how did how did he do that? Um, I think she was talking about the scene where Woody Harrelson is following Llewellyn to Mexico. She's like, how did Woody Harrelson's character find him there? I don't know. Maybe he left a blood trail or something. Well, they didn't show us that. Or, you know, later on when Woody Harrelson finds the suitcase full of money that Llewellyn had tossed off of the border bridge into the riverbank of the Rio Grande below. How did Woody Harrelson find that? And why didn't he just fucking go get it then? Right, yeah, why didn't he? You know why it is, though? Because in the movie, there's a, there's a running theme of if you just take the money and run, you'll be fine. But if you try to show decency or if you hesitate, you just get fucking killed. Because that's what happens. That's what happens to Llewellyn at the start. He goes back to give the guy water, and that's the only way the Mexicans can find him. Which I don't know. I feel like you could probably connect that to Delta Green in some way. It is connected in that doing the right thing in Delta Green. In my experience playing the game, usually the person who does something bad is not the one who pays the price, and usually the one who does something good is not the one who survives. So, do we have any other elements of discussion for No Country for Old Men, or do we want to move on to? Uh, Heron's item. Well, for once, I think I'm satisfied talking about the subject I brought up. Uh, so I was thinking of the SCP Foundation as something with a lot of crossover potential with Delta Green. Uh, if you haven't heard of it, it's an online writing community uh, focused around this secret quasi-government organization that protects the public from the supernatural. Uh, its existence is top secret. It nominally works for the government, but it also has the power to boss around a lot of world governments. Uh, and the main thing is that it employs field agents to investigate reports of supernatural goings-on. Are, are you sure you're not just talking about Delta Green? There's kind of a template for a lot of these groups. The major thing that separates the SCP Foundation from Delta Green is that the SCP Foundation is not focused on destroying the supernatural. They want to contain it and study it. So the format of the article is typically the measures they need to take to keep it contained within whatever vault they have it in, then sort of a description of what it is, and then supplemental materials like how they discovered it and put it in containment. And usually it's that last section that has the most evocative, uh, most usable stuff for a game because the previous sections are pretty dry and they are meant to read like, not scientific papers, but they're meant to be very, very stoic, very like matter of fact. Like uh, field reports, basically? Tend to not use subjective language, uh, just tend to be very brief and objective, kind of emotionless? 
Yeah, exactly. Some of these things are really strange, but it doesn't necessarily come across in that language. A fairly common one is SCP-184, which is essentially a small metal object that can recursively expand the interior of whatever container you put it in. So you put it in a cardboard box and leave it alone for a couple hours, and when you open it up, the cardboard box has now expanded into this massive chamber, hundreds of meters on every side. Only on the inside, though. Yeah, only on the inside, that's the thing. It looks like a normal cardboard box on the outside. The story of how they collected it is that this object was in the middle of Kowloon Walled City, being worshipped by people there. And so the SCP Foundation sent a team of agents to try and recover it. They suffered horrific casualties, not because anyone was fighting them, but just because Kowloon is already such a crazy, difficult-to-navigate environment, and suddenly you have this supernatural labyrinth just growing out in all directions that most of them never came back. They just got lost in there. There's a specific line where part of the narrative is the the agent goes inside of the structure that had been transformed and he's he's going he's going through it and he says that after a while it stopped being new rooms based on old rooms and it started being the same room over and over again but made out of different materials so we go into a room and there'd be a buddha statue made entirely out of compressed paper and you go into the next room and it'd be the same thing but all in wood that sounds vaguely carcosan so from here i'm going to ask what are the lessons we're learning from this conversation about adapting this type of material to Delta Green? In general, the Foundation is a great repository of strange objects and people and locations that you can drop into a scenario and just have exploring that be the scenario and the stories that come with them. Rather than list any more because there are a bunch of good ones I can think of, I think the thing is also just that it's a pretty good example of weird fiction, of how a lot of, how one strange thing can kind of upend your sense of what is normal and what day-to-day life should be like. I mean, you could take all these strange items and things from the Foundation website, and really all you've got to do is add interactive elements and then some sort of a plot, and you've got a scenario, right? Yeah, exactly. Just because we've said before that we're always trying to think of solutions to a problem that don't involve just have more gun. A lot of these things are good for that because kind of the principle of the foundation is that we should be trying to contain these things. We shouldn't be trying to destroy them. So a lot of them come with the assumption that just shooting at it or blowing it up isn't going to make any difference. That's another benefit of it is that if you use this material, some of it might be mythos-inspired, but none of it is going to be explicitly something the players will have ever seen before. So you are sending them kind of into the unknown. Unless they read publicly available and editable wikis. Well, the player characters. The player characters who have however many unnatural, they might not recognize this thing because it hasn't come up in a Lovecraft story before. I'm going to I'm going to come back and defend SCP Foundation cuz it's been pretty obvious from the way I talk about it that I don't like it, but that's not true necessarily. I think that it did part of being a large website that invites a lot of public contribution is that inevitably a lot of that's going to be below a certain standard of quality. I think that there's a lot in there that you can like you said just just take and drop into a Delta Green scenario. The main difficulty there as with anything else is going from 
an item that would look cool in a green box or a scary monster to a full-size scenario requires that there be some way of tracking stuff from A to B, of following clues or something that lets you move from one scene to the next or from one plot element to the next. So to take something like that and make a full-fledged narrow does require some legwork. I think a lot of the fun with this stuff would be not necessarily investigating it and locating it. It's kind of uh, making the problem go away. It is trying to uh, contain it yourselves and figure out its properties without driving yourselves insane in the process. Or getting a couple hundred innocents killed. Yeah, exactly. Now, for my next trick, I suppose I will tell you all about Hellboy and the BPRD and friends. Why don't you tell us about Hellboy and the BPRD friends, Millen? That's good. So, this is this is a franchise by Mike Mignola. It's a comic book series. The plot is that essentially the Karatekia has summoned the Antichrist to Earth, but they fucked it up and summoned him to England instead of Nazi Germany, where he was captured by an American paranormal investigator who raised him Christian. That sounds vaguely like the premise of uh, Superman Red Sun. Yes. Where it's just like a 12-hour like a difference gets Superman in communist uh, Russia. So Hellboy is the protagonist of this series, and he lives in a world where both the Cthulhu mythos but also all other myths are true. So... He has to go fight an Indonesian vampire, and he has to go and fight a troll and fight King Vold, the ghost hunter. The hunter who is a ghost, not a, not a man who hunts ghosts, so he also does hunt ghosts. And then do all that stuff. But then Rasputin keeps showing up to him and saying, Hellboy, you need to use your right hand of doom to unlock the gate to the bottomless pit and unleash the the old ones from their slumber. And then Hellboy says to him, no, I, I sh- I'll do no such thing. I want to have adventures with my friends and fight monsters. And so it's not sounding like any of this stuff is terribly well-suited to a Delta Green game, but there's adjacent to the Hellboy story, there's something called... there's The main line of the franchise essentially now is something called BPRD, which is the Delta Green equivalent in this world that Hellboy lives in. And I don't remember what the abbreviation stands for. Bureau of Paranormal Research Division? Research and Defense. There you go. And... uh If you've seen the film, if you've seen either of the films, all this stuff will be old hat to you. But essentially, the franchise offers a number of what are basically pre-baked Delta Green scenarios. You change like two or three words and you've got a DG adventure, which I've done. In my in my scenario basket, I have three different modules that are just direct direct ripoffs of Hellboy or BPRD stories because it sounded very silly and pulpy, although Frankly, I think that Delta Green was a lot better when it was silly and pulpy. But this is, I think, a very easy sell. I think the main the main, the main difference between the world of Delta Green and the world of Hellboy BPRD is that more often than not, the problem is something that normal people can't really deal with, and the solution is always some mystical bullshit. Like, Hellboy's got to beat it to death with the right hand of doom, or, you know, collect, get the right herb from his pouch and burn it, or uh, anymore, it's just Liz Sherman incinerates everything. That actually, I think, helps a lot because it kind of leads into the old anthropologist problem because suddenly someone with a lot of knowledge of local customs or, like, ancient myths, they can identify what traditionally this monster has been afraid of or weak to, and suddenly part of the adventure can become, okay, let's get the tools we need to keep this thing at bay. But what I'm saying here is that you have to adjust some things when... 
the story is written with the assumption that the protagonist has superpowers. I did one that was a takeoff of a storyline called Conquer a Worm. Conquer a Worm is a story where the Nazi scientist figures out a way to summon the space capsule that the Nazis shot up into space to bring down, essentially, a, a great old one to Earth. And in that one, the way that they fight the monster is they get a magic cube from an alien, and then when that doesn't work, they imprison it in the body of a homunculus, and then it just disappears because he's just that good. But I feel like those options are not necessarily viable for a Delta Green player. Yeah, that's true. I misinterpreted what you said then, because... Your average agent can't absorb a whole lot of mystic energy without vaporizing themselves. This has been empirically tested in our games. So what's the solution then? So I read the scenario text when you posted it, and I think your solution was, in this specific instance, like if you shot a whole bunch of electricity into the creature, it would decohere and explode? Opposite, actually. That if it's a creature made of pure energy, what you want to do is put it in a big battery. Oh, okay. So you... So find something else that can absorb all that energy. That's pretty much all I have to say for mine, is that it's a great franchise to pilfer things from, but that generally this is a problem that a lot of media properties have where the protagonist is a wizard or a a superhero or otherwise has some kind of ability that a normal person doesn't. And that can can mean that you need to pad out the parts of the investigation that involve solving the mystery, because most player characters aren't going to have the ability, and it also means you'll need to find a new solution to the problem, because that's not necessarily going to be available to most players. What about uh, if you were doing... Well, hold off on introducing some of these things for a later form of the campaign, maybe where a player does know the Elder Sign ritual or the Vorish Sign ritual, you know, some sort of uh, they'd have to, in effect, be the sort of John Constantine Hellblazer type, you know, hardened mythos veteran in order to combat these things. I don't think that players should ever have to cast a spell to succeed at a scenario. I think that that usually ends up being an awful deus ex machina. I can see where you're coming from there, that yeah, you would want to hold off on the Yogg-Sothoth summoning unless until you had given the players a reasonable chance to find the way to unsummon Yogg-Sothoth, but I don't, I just don't like that in it from a game design perspective, and I'm pretty sure I've done it before, but I wouldn't do it again with the knowledge I have today, because I just don't find that satisfying or interesting. Heron, you're also somewhat familiar with the BPRD franchise, in fact, I think you might have, you might have read it more, more of it than I have. Do you have anything to add here? So one of the things is that, like I mentioned earlier, Um, A lot of BPRD investigations kind of hinge on knowledge of the occult or local legends within whatever country they're operating in lately. And so that's kind of a cool way to give to make an anthropologist useful is that this is the person who can who can filter out the wheat from the chaff, the person who can find out what information might actually be relevant keep everybody alive as opposed to what's just flavor that's a good that's a good point because who is the best character in bprd well there's a lot of debate about this but i think that maybe not the top spot but at least a contender has got to be professor o'donnell who's absolutely a delta green character the guy with eight sanity who's can speak in languages that people didn't even know still existed um and my other stray thought was one of the cool things about hellboy is that because it takes from a lot of different mythologies rather than straight up Cthulhu mythos, a lot of your villains are not just like mindless or mentally operating at a level far beyond humanity. 
a lot of them will straight up like brag to you about what they're doing like what their evil plan is and they will make you watch as they do it yeah check it out brother i'm gonna make myself a body out of human fat uh check it out hellboy i'm gonna summon the old ones Ch- check check it out abe out of the caverns of numbubis dark and terrible deep the ocean is calling your children home yeah <laughs> exactly like there's kind of there's something fun about even if it's not strictly like lovecraftian or delta green it's kind of fun to have a guy once in a while who will just enjoys the fact of how evil they are well not even just that they enjoy how evil they are but let's go back to our ta- our discussion that we had earlier or our brief touching on how the villains in a given scenario or the antagonists or whoever are not experts they're not unstoppable highly trained killers who will never leave a trace of their actions if we assume that a lot of them are just normal ass people probably with very petty and venal motivations for using dark forces for their own benefit then it completely makes sense that you'd get these types of scenarios because there, there's all kinds there's all kinds of like you know two or three page comics in the hellboy world and there's one where it was um a guy who was like trying to summon anubis or whatever because the woman who worked at the university gift shop didn't like him so petty dog yeah the, the, the crooked man who just wanted a whole lot of gold stuff like that uh, so you're saying we could drive uh, very human inspirations for our villains from uh, bprd i'm saying the specifically what heron's talking about where it's people who are willing to talk about their evil plan or who seem to be having a whole lot of fun Maybe it's because they are a normal person who has finally been given what they wanted. And I will say also that the later stuff in the, the series is maybe more applicable to the to the kind of thing we're interested in because it is so much more focused on normal human beings instead of super-powered Uberi-men flying around and, and shooting fireballs at things. The point being that is that the later stuff is much more focused on the kind of the micro of... What is it like to be kind of a disposable piece of garbage in this world where, you know, a ghost in a suit of power armor and pyromancer and, uh, I guess, a fishman? Some of the early Hellboy one-shots work, too, because the structure of those is pretty simple. Hellboy goes to a creepy place. Somebody tells him about creepy legends. He snoops around and eventually has to fight a monster. That's a pretty simple yeah, and a lot of them are uh, stuff that he solves using his brain, because he's not, like, the world's smartest man, but he uses his brain rather than brute force. Which is always, uh, we code that as, like, the more preferable solution, just because, you know, the program wants to keep things secret and safe. So what else do we want to do before we call it? Oh, uh, I just have one more thing. Go ahead. Uh, no, Mr. Hellboy, I expect you to die. Uh, you joke, but... I'm going to find the page of Herman von Klempt where he's doing medical experiments in South Africa, in South Africa, South America, because, yeah, here we go. Here's the, here's the splash page I was thinking of. That's everything we have for tonight. In the show description, we have links to the Night at the Opera subreddit and Discord server, where you can play with us or just chat about nameless horrors. Thank you for listening to episode two of The Green Box. We'll be in touch, agents.